dad is a pastor, and this first church was when I was in third grade, and he uh, uh, was placed in this little church in a little town called Hicksville, Ohio. Um, and that's a proper noun, not an adjective. So I was I was at church every Sunday. Um, and it was uh, it was everything that, that is typical in a traditional church. Uh, it was small. It was old. I'm talking about the building and the people. Um, and honestly, it was kind of grumpy. Now, I'm guessing at least some of you grew up in church, and I'm guessing some of you didn't. Uh, either way, let me tell you a little bit about what it's like. Uh, a lot of churches I, I was a part of growing up, um, I, and I say this very carefully and honestly, as a pastor and a Christian, um, the churches growing up, um, they cared about the wrong stuff. I mean, just getting new carpet or new paint or any sort of remodeling church uh, required a committee. <laughs> and just moving photos from one wall to another required a meeting of some sort. And uh, I got uh, chewed out once for not wearing a suit and tie. Um, and, and heaven forbid the pastor didn't wear a robe. And then um, you had people's uh, unofficial assigned seats. So I don't know if you've ever heard of squatters' rights, but in some states, uh, if you live in a house for seven years and you insist it's your own, then it, it kind of becomes yours. In some churches, I know people who have sat in the same seat a lot more than seven years. And every week, Every Sunday, the same seed. It might as well have their name on it, and squatters' rights certainly apply. One time, we wanted to move, uh, remove a pew. Not all of the pews, heaven forbid, and not even replace them with comfortable chairs, um, but just one pew so that we could put in a sound booth. And uh, before we could, though, we had to go talk to the person who sat in that pew <laughs> to make sure it would be okay. It's a lot of work caring for people who care about the wrong kind of things. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of it. It's not evil. It's just not what a church should care about. And for me, as a young person, this message was loud and clear. Growing up, people cared about um, those things far more than they cared about uh, people like me, young people, uh, new people. Uh, sometimes a little energetic, eccentric, uh, creative people, people who don't know about the assigned seats, um, people who don't care about where you hang the photos of the previous pastors, um, people who don't know, uh, who doesn't care what the wall color is or what the color of the carpet is, just as long as it doesn't smell super old. Um, people who are just looking for community, just sincere community, and a place to live more like Jesus. And growing up, I began to feel like the church, it's very so hard to say it, but growing up, I began to believe that the church didn't want anything to do with people who were interested in following Jesus. Interesting. Not every church, and uh, there are a lot of great churches, and not every person in every bad church, but some churches, and some of the people in those churches, didn't seem interested in being a community for people who follow Jesus. And so I thought, if, if, if only I could find, you know, maybe it was because it was always part of old churches. So if I could find maybe a new or a young or a contemporary church, then I'll find people who are really serious about following Jesus. And I did. And then I realized that just how much the, that those, some of those churches will spend on entertaining people. 
So I have a church that spent four hundred million dollars to buy a new immersive audio video system. Once again, nothing wrong, nothing evil about that. Um, I just, man, wonder what else could you do with the four hundred million dollars? What could you do in some of the poor neighborhoods? What could you do to address issues of abuse or, or drug addiction or poverty or prostitution or homelessness? And yet, billions of dollars every year in America is spent on church buildings to make church just a little bit more entertaining for those who have everything already. Once again, it's not evil, it's not bad, it's just, I wonder if that's really what church is supposed to be about. So for many years, I pretty much gave up hope for the church, because from my perspective, the church cared about the wrong things, didn't care about bad things, it wasn't evil, just wrong things, and so I left the church. And I wasn't going to be a pastor because I didn't want to get caught caring for people who cared about the wrong stuff. So I told God I'd be in ministry. I would be working nonprofits, but I'm never going to be a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to just meet you. My name's Joe, and I'm one of the pastors here. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to be honest with you. Now that I am a pastor, I realize it's really easy to get distracted. Um, it's easy to focus on the wrong stuff. Um, it's easy to, to care about the wrong things, not bad things, um, just the wrong things. But I've come to believe, and I'll share that story another day, I've come to believe when the church focuses on the right stuff, people, mission, it can change the world. So we're in a church, and we're opening officially September 17th, 10 a.m. right here. And as a church that hasn't even opened, it's just a preview service, we're trying our best to focus on the right things. And I can't promise you that we won't make a lot of the same mistakes, because we probably will. Um, but we're trying. And, and here's how. So here's how we summarize what we want to care about. We have three core values that are very easy to remember. And, and I share these not because I, I think we're getting them right, but I share them because we want people like you to help us focus more and more on these three things. So here they are. Dynamic worship, intentional relationships, and risk-taking mission. Dynamic worship. We want to be reminded every week of a simple fact. Every week we want to be reminded that the world doesn't revolve around me. That there's a God. That there's a God and that God isn't me. That there's a power in this world that is far more beautiful and far more powerful. worthy of my attention than anything, than where we sit, or our AV system, or how we're dressed, and, and that this God loves us for who we are right now, and that all of those things that the world looks down on us for, that God looks and sees us as beautiful, we want to be reminded of that through dynamic worship. Second, intentional relationships. We want to be about people. We don't want to care about buildings or programs or systems more than we care about you, just individual people. And everything that's going on in your life, good and bad. And, and everything we do, we want to build genuine, vulnerable, and authentic relationships. Relationships that are honestly going to be messy, but beautiful. And so we want to be a place where you can know people and be known. And finally, risk-taking mission. We want to engage in issues of justice. To love the unlovable. To go after people that no one else finds worthy. To love the poor and the broken and the hurting and the disenfranchised. We want to do things that are risky and dangerous, all for the sake of changing the world, risk-taking mission. Dynamic worship, intentional relationships, and risk-taking mission. So the last couple of uh, preview services during the summer, we've talked about each one of these. Um, and today, at our last preview service uh, this summer, we're going to look at risk-taking mission. 
and share with you some practical ways through this week of service on how you can engage in some risk-taking service. Uh, but I want to do, I want to talk about this in a little bit of a roundabout way. When God called us to plant a church, um, one of the questions we had to answer was uh, who, what kind of a church we were going to plant. And, and part of that process is trying to uh, figure out and pray through what our affinity would be. In other words, uh, while we'd love to connect and reach everyone, we had to wrestle with um, uh, who will want, who does Alyssa and I, as, as the pastors, uh, will we connect with better than others? And so we prayed and we thought and we discussed and we decided we really have two kind of affinities, people we often connect with. The first is we wanted to be a church for uh, uh, people who are maybe in college, young professionals, families, um, but people often who are a little bit more upper middle class and educated. That's just, that's where we come from. That's our life. And so we wanted to be a church for that demographic. Uh, and second, we hope to be a church for the poor, uh, recovering addicts, uh, the broken, forgotten people of this world, because that's where our heart is. It hasn't been my experience, but that's where my heart is. So today we're actually going to talk a little bit about the first group. Um, we, uh, my wife and I and our team, we tend to relate with people who are slightly more uh, educated, contemporary. Uh, we love millennials. Uh, don't, don't believe what people are saying about them. They're great. Um, so one of our focuses, one of our focus groups would, is what you would, you'd call young professionals. And, and that's actually the conversation that led us here to Grandview and uh, here at a draft house. We thought this would be a great way to connect with uh, uh, college students, young professionals, families, um, the retired. And so we, we set out on a mission to figure out how to reach people in this target demographic. So let me just say, I hate that I'm referring to people as target demographic. Okay? I hate that I'm talking about people uh, as if they're in my affinity. Because some of my closest friends and some of the most active people in this church uh, might not view themselves as young or professional. I'm pretty sure I'm neither anymore. Uh, but that's, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's the conversation we had, um, and that's the conversations that happened in the back door, and that's how the sausage is made. So whether it's right or wrong, that's what happened. And so we bring this up because uh, we're not the only church to have that kind of conversation. How do we reach the professionals in the world, the wealthy? The early church... Um, had the exact same conversation. So if you go back 2,000 years, a little, little bit of a time, but if you go back 2,000 years, the church was made up of this ragtag team of nobodies. It was fishermen and zealots and, and tax collectors, and it wasn't cool, and it wasn't hip, and Jesus didn't have a really great band or a laser show or lights, and he didn't meet in a draft house. Let alone, he did go to a wedding once, so there was alcohol there. But let alone, there was no quarter of a million immersive projective system. There was no stained glass or pews. It was just this community of people following Jesus, trying to love each other, trying to love God and serve the poor. It was simple. It was messy and organic. And that was the church. In fact, the church, the Greek word for church doesn't mean church building. It's ecclesia and it means gathering. That's what it was. It was a gathering of people. Oftentimes, most of the time, not connected to a building. And it was relatively small and certainly not cool. But it was changing the world. One person at a time. Because people, for the first time in history, were loving others in a way they had never loved people before. They cared for the sick. They gave homeless homes. The poor, they gave food. The broken, they gave healing. And the world would never be the same. Think about it. Hospitals, nursing homes, orphanages. All of these institutions are a product of this radical movement. 
They all birthed out of people who were trying to live more like Jesus. But within a generation, this messy organic group of people, even growing day, they started to ask the same kind of question we started asking. They knew that if they wanted to move from the fringes of society to something that would be really influential and, and important in this world, that they would have to find a way to reach the professional class for class. Asking this question, what can we as a community do to be more attractive to those who are maybe young or who are professional or who are wealthy or who are influential? And it's a good question. Why don't you hold on to that thought? Because at the time, the Gospels were also being written. In your Bibles, and if you, if you brought a Bible, you can pull it up. Um, otherwise, you can look it up on your phone, but we'll have the Scripture passage up on the screen as well. But in the Bible, there are four books um, that tell the stories of Jesus. We refer to them as the Gospels. They're a compilation of a lot of different stories. Some tell the same stories in different ways, and some tell different stories in the same way. But there are four accounts of Jesus' life. And they weren't written as they were happening. They weren't like live typing or live streaming the works of Jesus. It was ha- they wrote it much later. And so they weren't written while they were happening. They were written about 70 to 80 to 90 years after Jesus lived and died. And they were written down and compiled so that the future generations, people who had never walked with Jesus before, would remember what Jesus did. So after 70 years, after a generation started living and dying, they started writing down these stories and sharing them with each other. And they don't write down all the stories of Jesus. They even say that. But they try to write down the important ones. The ones that they don't want to be forgotten. And so when the book of Matthew was being written and compiled, he's aware of this conversation, this question that the church is asking. He knows that the church wants to be cool and reach the next generation. And so he includes in his account, uh, as Mark and Luke do as well, one of these stories of Jesus. A story that answers this question rather specifically. It's a story literally about a young professional who has a rather interesting interaction with Jesus. And Matthew includes this story, this event, in his stories of Jesus, if not to specifically answer this question. How do we connect with the young, with the wealthy, with the professional? What do we do to reach them? And that's what we're going to look at today. So if you have your Bibles or your smartphone, go to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 16. Um, before we do that, it's 1916, Matthew 1916, we'll we'll start. Before we do that, let's, uh, let's pray. God, before we open your scriptures, we ask that you would open our hearts to receive, that you'd speak to us, that you'd challenge us, that regardless of what I say, you would speak to the individuals in this room, that it wouldn't be about me, um, that it'd be about them and their relationship with you. Um, Lord, we thank you that you are here. That you're able to work in our midst. In name we pray. Amen. Matthew 19, 16. So Jesus, he's out wandering with his disciples, and Jesus uh, was homeless. He was this homeless uh, nomadic teacher. So he would wander around and uh, minister to people as a homeless guy. And uh, he brought a lot of people with him, and he moved from city to city, and that was his ministry. He would always uh, he would care for those who were hurt, and he would challenge and rebuke those who were in power. And while he's doing this, uh, that kind of work, he's approached by this young professional. We know from a couple of different accounts that this man who comes to him was not only young, but he was very wealthy and also uh, a ruler. 
So he was in charge of stuff. So not only was he young and wealthy, but he was also a lot of people's bosses. He, he probably had a lot of servants and slaves at this time and ran multiple estates. So imagine uh, those sort of young professionals that seem to arrive so much quicker than the rest of us, the, like the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. Um, that's this guy. And here's what happens. Verse 16. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Pause there. Um, let me just say right from the start that he's asking the wrong question. You don't gain life by doing more stuff. Can't earn it. He might as well have said, how much does this thing cost? Where, what, who do I make the check out to? And it's the wrong question. Life is a gift and you can't earn it. And that's what Jesus tells him right from the start. He, he, he redirects and he says, what do you, why do you ask me what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. You can't get life by trying to be good. Uh, it doesn't work like that. It's a gift. Goodness is a gift. And then he goes on to just entertain the question, to have the conversation. He says, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. That's what he tells this young guy. Now, Jesus was a Jew and um, so was this man. And so they had a whole list of commandments. I mean, a lot of commandments. Uh, the most popular were the Ten. You might have seen the movie. Um, but uh, they had a lot more than that. And uh, he's, he says, you've got to keep the commandments. So the young man is like, okay, but that's a lot of commandments. So which ones are you talking about, Jesus? That's what he asked. He says, which ones? He inquired, and Jesus clarifies. He says, you shall not murder. And the kid's thinking, okay, I've never done that. You should not commit adultery. He's like, I'm good there. You should not steal. He's like, not done that. You should not give false testimony. Good there. You should honor your father and mother. And he's probably like, well, most of the time. And love your neighbor as yourself. He lists some of the Ten Commandments. And it also just says love people, which is really kind of the best way to summarize most of the Ten Commandments is to love people, to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, do these things and you're good. And the guy replies, verse 20, all of these I have kept. Sure you have. I mean, come on. Really? That would be impressive. What's funny is, uh, um, this is the part that kind of makes me mad when I read the story. Because if you read on, Jesus doesn't challenge the guy on this. Which makes me think that maybe this guy actually did, for the most part, keep all of these commandments. Which means this, and this is what I hate about this guy. Not only is he young, not only is he rich, not only does he have lots of power, but he's also moral. Like, what are the chances? <laughs> like, you know, like we say money and power corrupt. And so you're like, yeah, usually, you know, a lot of times they do. But not with this guy. Like, he comes across, he's like, he's actually a pretty upstanding citizen. Like, he's a good dude. And he's like, I, I'm actually, like, I've done most of that, Jesus. Like, I've been a really overall good person. He seems to have it all. So what could he be lacking? That's a good question. And it's one he asked. He says to Jesus, all of these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? This guy he has it all. And he still feels like he lacks something. But everything he has, he still feels like he lacks something. Now, if you think about it, that's actually a scary thought. Because in, in my life, I often feel like I lack something. But, and I don't know, maybe you do too. Have you ever felt like you've lacked something? That maybe you're missing something? 
if you, if you do, and if you're anything like me, I tend to just assume that it's because I'm not wealthy enough, that I'm not powerful enough, that I'm not young enough, and certainly because I'm not good enough, moral enough, nice enough. And if I was any of those things, if I was more of any of those things, then I wouldn't lack anything. But here's a guy who has that and still in the depths of who he is, he wonders, what do I still lack? Which makes me wonder, what if all of those things don't actually fill us up? What if all of our striving after those types of things just leaves us as lacking and missing as when we started? What if maybe we've been caring about the wrong stuff, like a church that cares about the wrong stuff? Not bad things, not evil things, just not what we're supposed to care about. Look at Jesus' response, verse 21. He says this. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, I want to pause right there, if you want to be perfect. Um, Perfect in the NIV is often translated this way. The Greek word is actually teleos, and it it comes from a Greek word that means the end. Um, And so what it means is it's not perfect, but it means that you've reached the end goal. A better translation would be mature, complete, um, or dare I say, not lacking. So a young man says, what do I lack? And Jesus says, well, if you don't want to lack anything, if you want to be complete, if you feel like you're missing something, he says, do this. He says, go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. He says, sell everything you have, give the proceeds to the poor, and then follow me which means literally come with me, a homeless rabbi, and join me and be homeless with me and serve the least of these. Very tempting offer, don't you agree? Okay, let's step back for just a second. Remember, during this time when this is being published, the the church is having a conversation. They want to know how to reach people just like this rich young ruler, young professional. And they want their church to go mainstream. And right around this time, Matthew publishes this book on Jesus, and the early church is reading it. Well, they were most likely listening to it be read, because a lot of them couldn't read. So they're listening to Matthew's stories of Jesus, and as they listen, they come across the story where Jesus encounters someone who is rich and wealthy and influential and, and could, could do so much to help take Jesus' ministry to the next level. I mean, if Jesus could just get this guy on board, it would be awesome. I mean, he could do so much. Imagine And yet, instead of bending over backwards to win him over, Jesus looks into this guy's eyes and he says, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and then follow me. Imagine if that became our outreach strategy. No, imagine if that was our entrance requirement for this community. That if you wanted to be part of this community, you had to sell everything you had and go live with the poor. You see, the early church was asking the question, what must we change to be liked by the wealthy? Whereas Jesus flipped it around and he asked, what must I, what must you do to be able to more fully follow me? The rich young ruler, he asked, what do I lack? And Jesus basically replies, not enough. You don't lack enough. You have too much. You have too much to truly understand what it means to be human, what it means to follow me. 
you need to be more generous. Today we're talking about risk-taking mission, and when I think about risk-taking mission, I think about ministry to the poor. I think about moving to a poor neighborhood or giving up wealth and comfort like Jesus asked this guy to do. I think about volunteering and making uh, friends with prostitutes and uh, drug addicts, and I think about doing things that are really risky to help those who are in need, and that's what I think of when I think of risk-taking mission, and it's true, that is risk-taking mission, but to be honest, what Jesus does here is actually far more risky than that. He does, uh, he does serve the poor, but he doesn't just serve the poor. He doesn't just love the unlovable. He didn't just come to set captives free. He was willing to also look power in the face, to look wealth in the face, to look at comfort in the face, and say, it's time for you to give up your wealth, your power, and join me on mission to the least of these. And that is more risky than I'm comfortable with. You see, to be completely honest with you, I'd much rather just go volunteer on a Saturday myself than look at wealth or power and challenge it. Like, I, I, I would rather go be homeless with Jesus than look at somebody with power and wealth and say, hey, you should really give some of that up. And here, I, for a couple of reasons, the first reason is good, the second one's not so good. The first reason is because honestly, I'm not Jesus, which means I'm struggling with this just like anyone else. Like, if you're looking for a clean interpretation that lets you off the hook with this passage, you come to the wrong place because I'm leaving the tension right where it is. And I'm struggling with it right alongside you. And so I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers anywhere other than right here because I, I got to figure it out. And so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not so bold as Jesus because I'm not Jesus and I, I don't have it figured out. I'm not homeless yet. But the other reason is actually probably less, um, less sincere. Um, if I'm honest, I'm a little bit of a coward. <laughs> and it takes a lot of courage to stand up to power and say, let's be generous with all you have. And I, I don't want you to think I'm crazy. And I don't want you, uh, I don't want to ask you to do something that you think is crazy and silly or something that feels impossible because honestly, I want us to be friends. <laughs> I do. And uh, if I know anything about this world, it's this. We don't tell other people what to do with their money. We don't. Not only do we not tell other people what to do with their money, we don't even talk about their money ever. You know, they say the two things you don't talk about at the dinner table, religion and politics. What's the two things you talked about over Thanksgiving last year? religion and politics. Like, we say that's what we don't talk about. Do you know what we really don't talk about? Money. In fact, we don't even talk about not talking about it. That's how taboo it is. Like, it just doesn't come up. We're not even bringing up the topic. I was chatting with a, with a friend uh, who's a financial advisor. He's the one that actually pointed out this. I was asking him about some of the struggles we have uh, with, uh, people have t- tend to have with their money. And he's the one who pointed this out. He said one of the biggest problems with uh, money is that we're so unwilling to even look at it, honestly. Our biggest problem is that we're not willing to, to talk about it. And so we, we don't even, we don't, we don't talk about it to other people, but even in our management of money, it's so taboo that we hide it from ourselves in savings accounts and pensions and our, like, we don't even, like, hide it because I don't even, I don't want to even look at it. And money becomes this deeply personal an emotional thing that we hide from ourselves. So this guy said uh, one of the best benefits of a financial advisor is just having someone objective to help you talk about your money so you stop dealing with it so emotionally. And and honestly, I kind of see that's what's happening in this passage with Jesus. 
He wants this man to look at all he has. And he asks him a simple question uh, regarding it. The professional, uh, he was wealthy, he had lots of power, which means he probably owned lots of estates with servants and stewards and managers managing all of it from the day-to-day business, which means in some way, just like all of us, he had separated himself from his wealth. And, and he didn't, wasn't concerned with the everyday normal business of his, of his enterprise. And Jesus says that the one thing he needed to do was to go and sell everything he had. But Jesus, he doesn't tell him to abandon everything he has. Which is often what I think about when I read the story. Like Jesus once, is like St. Francis of Assisi, if you know his story. He abandoned his wealth. That's not what Jesus tells this guy. He doesn't say don't abandon. He says go and sell. And not even sell. This is a bad translation as well. In the ancient world, they didn't sell things. They traded. They bartered. And that's what the Greek word here is. is go and barter. Go and trade. In other words, take what you have and turn it into something different that can benefit the poor. Jesus tells him not to leave it behind, but to go back to it. He actually sends this guy to his money. The command go is often not in that direction. Usually it means to follow Jesus. He says, no, go to your stuff and translate it, trade it into something that would be beneficial to the poor. And so he asks him to face his wealth and asks him, how can you redirect this to help those who are in need? How can you take... Your, one of your houses and open it to the homeless? Can you take your cattle and use it to feed the hungry? Can you send some of your servants to make it, you know, to volunteer in the community, although they probably didn't use the word volunteering back then? And can you use some of the, your own time that wealth affords you to volunteer to make a difference? How can you take your assets and give them new meaning by directing them towards something that's making a real difference? And friends, that's the question. I want to leave with you. That's the tension that I want you to reflect on. How can you take what you've got, whatever it is, and use it to make a difference? Now, you can respond in a a couple uh, different ways. Either you can go back to your uh, stuff and hold, hold on to it more closely, afraid of what God might do with it if you gave it away. Or you can let go of it, let go of control of it, and say, God, all that I have is yours already. Here's what the young man does, verse 22. Not a happy story. It says, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. This man went away sad. Even here, yet again, this word doesn't really do the text justice. Um, the Greek word here isn't sad so much as it's grieving. It's the word you'd use if someone died. It says, this guy went away grieving. The mere thought of losing his wealth left him utterly In other words, he might have been young and powerful, but his money was the thing that had real power over him. His wealth had enough power over him to affect him in the deepest of places to force him to grieve. His wealth and the fear of losing it left him hopeless. This man asked Jesus what he was lacking. And Jesus knew this man was lacking real freedom. He worked hard. He did good things. He was successful, but he wasn't free. Because his wealth still had ultimate control over him. 
And what Jesus was offering him wasn't a life of poverty, but a life of freedom. The freedom to care about the right stuff, free from the pressure and control of what this world cares about. And and, and today, what I want you to hear, if you don't hear anything else, is that Jesus wants you to be free too. You can give up control. You can let go. Later on, the disciples go and they say, how is this even possible? And Jesus says, with, with, with humans, it's not. But with God, all things are possible. This goodness, this life, this eternal life is a gift. And there's no amount of wealth or power that you'll get from it. For it's only when you let go that you're able to receive. And God will give you what you need to be able to let go. As we look at this world, and we look at issues of racism, fear, uh, poverty, pain, uh, brokenness, um, we need people who are free, who can stand in the gap for those who are hurting. Friends, there is so much work to be done. There is such great need. Which means there is such great opportunity. But we need people who aren't being controlled by our stuff or our ambitions. Who are just saying, alright, what can I do? So today, I want to invite you to, to, to first look at what you have and think. How can I use this for good? And then I'd like for you to invite you to join us this fall as we, maybe not perfectly or we'll get it all right, but as we give ourselves to the poor. So this fall from September 10th to the 16th, a week before our grand opening, uh, we're holding a week of service. And we've partnered with a lot of organizations, predominantly with our neighbors uh, in the South and Franklinton who are doing great work, who are already serving the poor, um, but we need your help. We need people who are willing to give of their resources um, and especially their time. And, and, and the truth is, um, if you have the booklet, you have, actually have a whole list of all the resources. And if you, if you start looking through uh, all the different projects, if you start looking through some of the projects, you'll notice some of them are during the week, during the day. And what's interesting about that is I know all of you are like, I work nine to five. So once again, let's think creatively about what we have to offer. Do you have personal time that you could give to something like this? Do you have a vacation day? half of vacation. I know it'll cut your Disney trip down by a day. I get that. But what would it look like to take all of our assets, including one of the hardest we hold on to, our time, and say, I'm going to give it to work that's making a real difference in a broken world. So what I want you to do is uh, take a few seconds and look through this. You'll notice if you, uh, it's a little booklet, but you can actually pull off the back part. And if you want to, you can keep the front, you can tear this in half, See if I can do it. And uh, you have what becomes a connect card. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. They're going to play some just uh, some light music um, to give us some time to think. I'd like to invite you to either look through this and even before you go today, I'm not as bold as Jesus to say, sell everything you have and come be homeless with me because I'm not there yet myself. Um, but I am bold enough to say, what would it look like if before you left today, you signed up for at least one place to serve? If you need a booklet or pens, we have them. We're going to just spend a couple minutes, three, four, maybe five minutes reflecting 
wrestle with this. That's the whole point of the text. It doesn't have an easy answer. It's between you and God. I want you to wrestle with it, and I want you to consider maybe signing up for one of these. And after a couple minutes of reflection, uh, the band will lead us in our closing song.